I'm going to try and preach fast today because I have much respect for the Bears-Packers tradition. Uh, I'm feeling a Bears win today. No offense, Packers fans. Not trying to offend you Packers fans, but I feel like it's time. Rodgers is done. He's done. He's cooked. It's over. Packers fans, please don't leave. I love you. I do love you. You know that. But the Bears are going to win today. I feel it. All right, I'm going to jump in. Can we do this, though, if nothing else, for my sake? Can we just, just pray real fast? Just kind of get our hearts into uh, worshiping God, not, not how we sing, but now how we listen. Jesus, I just thank you, first of all, for your faithfulness, like we sang. That's my story, Jesus. You have been so faithful to me. And I just preach up here today out of gratitude and awe and thanksgiving for the good God that you are. I have tasted and seen, God, how good you are. And I'm filled with a room full of people that say the same thing. And so, God, we just pray in these next few minutes that through the power of your Holy Spirit speaking, that your goodness would just be in this room and it would transform our lives. God, I pray that there would be such a spirit of encouragement in these next few minutes. Would you just meet with us and would you pastor us, God, and father us? and mother us and teach us what we need to know in these next few minutes. We give this time to you, Jesus, and we pray it in your name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. So we're in a series for four weeks. Trevor, uh, didn't Trevor do a great job kicking it off last week? We're in this long-standing ancient tradition called Advent, and Advent is just celebrating the coming of Jesus Christ into this world, and there's really uh, so much you could say about Advent, and I suggest there's great uh, resources out there, great books on Advent you could buy, but there's really four fundamental pillars that surround this idea of Jesus coming into this world, four things that he ultimately came to bring perfection and restoration back to. And the first one we talked about it last week with Trevor was this thing called peace. Who, my word, who doesn't need some more of that in your life, right? But Jesus, when he was here, he said, my peace I give you, my peace I leave you. In other words, it's there for you. So we talked about peace. And then this week I get the privilege of talking about the second fundamental pillar. And it's another one that's like, man, we all could use more of this. And it's this word hope. Next week, we'll tackle the word love, kind of an important one, right? God is love. And then we finish going into the Christmas season talking about joy. But I get the privilege, like I said, of talking about hope. And there are a few ancient words scattered throughout all of the Bible in the Hebrew language that our forefathers and our foremothers uh, used to explain what hope really is. And so I just want to really quickly tell you, when you're reading the word hope in the Hebrew scriptures, this is the actual Hebrew word, one of them. The first one is this. It's the word yachal. I'm trying to say it right. (laughs) A German guy trying to speak. Yachal. However you do that, right? And here's what hope to them Think about this, the inception of this idea of hope from our forefathers, what they knew about God, it means to wait for. But then there's another word that's used as much, and it's a different word, and we'll see what it means. It's the word chava. Guess what it means? We're seeing a pattern here, right? To wait. So when you're thinking about this idea of hope, you have to be thinking about the idea of waiting. I call it this. Hope is this. It's patient anticipation. Think about that. Hope is simply patient anticipation. It's the ability to wait well. Now, I love anticipation. 
I'm an optimist by nature. I love the feeling of anticipating something that's coming. I still, like a little kid, get excited when something's on the way that I'm excited about. I love feeling giddy. I get all excited. I love anticipation because it's this feeling like the possibilities are endless. But I didn't call hope just anticipation, did I? It's patient anticipation. And can I tell you what I'm awful at? The discipline of patience. I love me some good old-fashioned optimistic anticipation and getting ready for something, but I hate waiting for it. I am not by nature at all a patient person, but patience is fundamental to being a person who is a person of hope. And here's why that's so important, because we know in Hebrews chapter 6, the writer tells us that hope is literally, think about this for a city, hope is literally what anchors your soul. When all the chaos and all the storms of life come, and we know those are inevitable, some of you are walking through those right now, your anchor in those storms to keep you in the right direction, to keep you safe, to keep you moving in the right direction is simply this thing called hope. But if you are going to be a person of hope, you are going to have to be a person of patience, and you are going to have to be a person who learns the art of waiting well. Man, I wish I was better. If, if anyone in here, let's be honest, we're having church. Anyone like me, you struggle with the discipline of patience? All right, come on, we're having, okay, thank you. For those of you who didn't raise your hand, I, I love you, but I don't like you because I don't even understand that. I'm horrible. Here, here, here's how you know I know I'm not good at patience. I fly for a living, and you've been on the airlines lately, right? Like if you're going to fly with any type of grace and hope at all, you have to incorporate patience. A couple years ago, I was flying home uh, from Europe and I was only there three days. And let me just tell you, if you've never gone to Europe and you ever get to go, stay there for at least like 10 days, right? Because it takes three days or more just to get your body used to the time change. I was only there for three days. I was preaching in a conference and coming right back home. When it was over, I had so much excitement and anticipation and hope for one thing. I just wanted to see my wife and I just wanted to see my kids. I missed them and I'm tired. So I'm flying home. I'm in Frankfurt, Germany at the airport and I'm doing a straight through flight all the way to Denver, Colorado. It's about a 10 and a half hour flight. I get on the plane full of anticipation and hope. I'm going to sleep on the ride home and I'm going to wake up. We're going to be there and I'm going to go to dinner with my family. That's all I wanted. I had an uh, aisle seat and the person that I would come to find out and meet sitting next to me was this German lady who was flying for the first time. Don't do an international flight when it's your first flight, right? She spoke a little bit of broken English. So we said our hellos and talked for a minute. Uh, uh, we'll, we'll for this story call her Olga, okay? Because uh, that was her name. <laughs> And I'm sitting next, to, it literally was, I'm sitting next to Olga and I'm going to put this, how do I say it? Olga was larger in stature. Okay. And so, uh, I, I got some ham hocks here and I literally for 10 hours, I had to sit like this. Now, Olga didn't know how to get on her seatbelt. And she, she asked me to help her get on her seatbelt. So right at the beginning of the flight, when I'm just thinking about getting home, I'm thinking about sleeping, me and Olga are already, already being too personal. We're already having too close a contact. Way more than I ever wanted, right? And then if you fly, you guys know what I'm talking about, the oh-so-coveted arm chest war or, or armrest war. You guys know what I'm talking about? Because there's not as many armrests as there are people on the flight. And I'm telling you, for 10 and a half straight hours, Olga won. She was 10 and 0. 
She won the whole thing. So not only am I staying in tight here, I'm coming in tight here for 10 and a half hours. Now, Olga, yes, being larger in stature, but if there was one thing that was not large on her, it was her bladder. I'm not kidding you. About every 30 to 45 minutes, she would very politely, hey, Chad, I would get up to use the toilet. And I'm like, uh, no, of course you do, Olga, go ahead. And so there was no sleep for 10 and a half hours. And I'm just like this the whole time. And she was so kind and so nice. And so I'm just trying to be gracious about it. But I just have so much hope to get home, right? Then I get through customs when we get to Denver. That's normally about, customs is about a 20-minute walkthrough. You know, they got all the ropes, but there's not usually. I get there, and it is packed. So for an hour and a half, I'm moving at a snail's pace through the ropes, just waiting to get up there. I get through an hour and a half later. So now we're about 13, 14 hours into this day. And then I finally get on I-70, which is the biggest freeway in Denver, to make it home. And I kid you not, there was not a wreck, an eight-car pileup. So it took me another two and a half hours to get home. And at one point, I was talking to my wife on the phone. I was literally stopped in the fast lane. So I couldn't even get over to get off on an exit. Like literally stopped, never moved an inch for a half hour. And I hadn't eaten because I was going to meet my family to go out to dinner. And that's all I wanted, my favorite things in life, my family and food, right? And I'm talking to my wife and I was so mean to her. And my wife's an angel. My wife's a saint compared to me. And I was so mean to her. And it wasn't for any other reason that I was hangry. You guys know what I'm talking about? Now, I'm not the bastion of emotional stability when I'm well fed. (laughs) You don't want hangry, Chad. It's not a pretty thing. And so then I started going off on her. And and I could just hear the innocence and the shock in her voice. And she finally said, hey, I'll tell you what. We'll just go out and get something to eat. And why don't you just get home and maybe have a little time to yourself. And then we'll come home. And I end up just like such a failure. It's, and, and here's why. It's because my hope, my plans, my, listen to this, timetable had been thwarted. So I want to do this. I want to give you just a few thoughts about the art of waiting well. Because can we be honest? Let's think about this for a minute. The majority of your life will be spent waiting. I love finish lines. I love when goals get accomplished. I love when you get a a, a proverbial win in your life. Those are key moments in your life. But the majority of your life, if you really think about it, is spent in in between the finish lines, the wins. Let's let's contextualize it to us as as believers, to to, to the promises of God coming to fruition. We heard Lauren talk about some some cool testimonies of prayers being answered. And I am so grateful for that. But we also got to remember, while all those beautiful prayers are being answered, there's a whole other group of people who have been praying and waiting on some really big things for a long time right now. Some of you in here, I know that because I'm one of them. You've been praying and you've been believing And you've tried to hold on to your hope for a long time, but the timetable has become a problem and it's become frustrating. And so the first thing I want to talk about when I talk about the art of waiting well is this. If you're going to be a person of hope, you're going to have to make your peace with this first. God's timetable is not our timetable. You have to, if you're going to be a person of hope, which is going to anchor your soul in all of those seasons of the waiting, you're going to have to make your peace that God's timetable is not our timetable. The prophet Isaiah, he says this, this is a familiar verse. He says, for my thoughts, don't hear Isaiah saying this, hear God saying this. God says to us, my thoughts for a city church are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways 
your ways. Neither are your ways, excuse me, my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. To which I say, then let the games begin. We're in a relationship with someone that doesn't think like us. We're in a relationship with someone that has an MO that is oftentimes fundamentally different than the way we would draw things up. And I don't want to sound heretical here, but I really, really, really wish Isaiah would have added one more sentence to that. And it wouldn't have been unbiblical. You know why? I'm not really adding to scripture when I add this because this principle is all over scripture. We're going to see it today. But I wish at the end of that last sentence, he would have added one more sentence. I wish he would have said this, just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my timetable is not your timetable. Amen? The Apostle Peter in the New Testament, he would, he would say the same thing in different words because he was pastoring a church that had been eyewitnesses. A bunch of them in his church had been eyewitnesses of Jesus. They walked with Jesus. They talked with Jesus. They saw the miracles of Jesus. And then they heard Jesus towards the end tell them he was coming back for them after, they di- after he died and rose again. They were putting all of their anticipation on the fact that Jesus said he was coming back again. But now 2,000 years later, how'd that work out for them, right? And they were starting to get crazy. They were starting to lose their minds. They were starting to live a much smaller version of what they were intended to live because they had put all their eggs into the basket that Jesus was coming back because he told them they're coming back. But his timetable isn't our timetable. And so Peter, as Peter does so well, starts to pastor them through their waiting. And he says this, he says, do not forget this one thing, church, with the Lord, ready for this? A day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years is like a day. He says this to him, and I say this to us today. The Lord isn't slow in keeping his promise. As some, as we, I should have said, as we all understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. He's telling us, listen, God isn't bound by the space-time continuum. You and I are. God isn't bound by dimension. You and I are. So if we choose to put our faith and our hope and our trust in a God whose ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts are higher than our ways, his, as Apostle Peter says there, his timetable is different than ours, then our only hope is hope. (laughs) But you have to make your peace with this. With hope comes waiting. And hope is simply this, according to our ancient forefathers, the Hebrews. It's the art of learning how to wait well. And if you're going to do that, your first thing you got to do is just make your peace with the fact that God's timetable and our timetable, how he does it and how we would want him to do it, are rarely going to go together. Now, in the 1940s, there was this really smart scientist, and I'm not even going to try and explain what he was working on, but it had something to do with nuclear fusion or something like that that I failed in high school. And he's working on it in the 40s, and while he's doing this one experiment in his lab one day, he had put a piece of chocolate in his pocket to save for later after lunch. And while he was working with these nuclear particles, the piece of chocolate melted in his pocket. And it would take three more decades, but that was the inception of this technological advance that we all weekly partake in, known as the microwave. 
something melted because of some nuclear stuff going on. That's as smart as I can explain it because uh, I'm blue collar here, guys. And, and eventually, three decades later, we got this thing called the microwave. And the microwave fundamentally shifted the way our homes work and our kitchens work. The microwave was an absolute technological gift to a bunch of moms who were starting post-World War II to enter the workforce like they had never entered the workforce before. All of a sudden, they didn't have time to to sit and enjoy cooking an hour-long or two-hour-long meal. All of a sudden, they were coming home at 5, 6, 7 o'clock at night, and it was so nice to all of a sudden have this technological advance called the microwave. How many of you, by show of hands, used your microwave at least once this week? Yeah. I used it more than once. I am not bashing the microwave. I am grateful for the microwave. I couldn't have my hot pockets, hot pockets without the microwave, right? It is a gift. But I got a question for you. Because see, we were all born into this generation where technological advancements are happening at a rapid pace like we've never seen before. The beauty of technology, just like the microwave, is it streamlines things for us. And when things get streamlined and when things get easier for us, we have this gift if we know how to use it right. It's this thing called time. It's this thing called margin, right? But here's the problem. We were all born into the greatest age of technological advancement in the history of the world. In other words, we were not born into a society that is good by nature at waiting because almost all the things that civilization has had to just get good at waiting on and get used to waiting on, we no longer have to wait for, including food. But here's the question, Forsyth. What do you do when you serve or what do you do when you're born into a microwave generation but you serve a crockpot God, right? Because his timetable isn't our timetable. And God is not in the hurry that we are. God is not in the hurry that we want him to be for us on our behalf. See, here's the thing with the microwave is as quick as you get stuff, guess what we had to sacrifice to get things faster? Two things, flavor, nutrients. Those two things had to go by the wayside. Now, I married a Southern Belle, and I am grateful for that. And so uh, the microwave doesn't get used quite as much in our houses, a lot of houses, because my wife, literally, I'm not joking, I'm not kidding when I say this, five days a week at least, my wife, for six to eight hours a day, and I work at home now, so I, I'm, I'm blessed by this, five to six, seven, eight hours a day, there is some type of dead animal in this crock pot cooking for the glory of my taste buds, Right? Like, we're, we're just a family. My wife's Southern. She grew up. Her grandma, that's all it was. So, so I'm blessed by that. So I get to smell all day these flavors that are coming out because of the slow-cooked process. See, that's the, that's the thing with God and his time frame is that when things happen too fast, you sacrifice. Now I'm talking about your soul and your spirit. I'm not talking about your taste buds anymore. I'm talking about your soul and your spirit. When things happen as fast as we want them to, but not on God's timetable, here's what you end up sacrificing. When you start trying to take God's plan for your life into your own hands and into your own control, even if you think you got the job done faster, at some point your soul and spirit will be devoid of the flavor it deserves and the nutrients that it deserves from God. 
because we serve a crock pot God, not a microwave God. His timetable is not our timetable. Another thing interesting about the microwave and the crock pot is the microwave, this cooks things from the outside in. That's where we lose the flavor and the nutrients. It works and it goes fast, but it cooks things from the outside in. The crock pot's the exact opposite. Just like the kingdom of God, it cooks things from the inside out, right? The kingdom of God, I've told you this before, is always an inside out proposition. Seek me first, Jesus said, and my kingdom, then all the other things will be added unto you. You work on the soul. You work on the care of your spirit. You work on your heart. You work on your mind. You work on your your body. And you trust me with everything out there in that crazy, sin-stained world. You, you, You work on letting me add flavor and nutrient to the inside of who you are. And then you trust me with everything going on around here. God's crock potting us, which means this. Hope is essential to walking through this life and walking in life and life to the fullest because hope is patient anticipation. Hope is who you are in the waiting. It's easy to be the best version of yourself when you cross the finish line. And, and I'm, again, I'm for that. I love it. Celebrate those moments. It's easy to be the best version of yourself when that prayer finally got answered. It's easy to be the best version of yourself for a season when that promotion you've prayed for finally came. It's easy to be the most joyous, best person when, when that, that wayward child you've been praying for for years, now into their adulthood, they come home back to Jesus. It's easy, and you should celebrate and enjoy those seasons, but, but don't forget who you were becoming and who God was making you in the waiting. Don't forget that. So I want to do this. I want to go back and I want to use a moment in the history of Israel to continue to illustrate this. I want to go back to to Exodus and I want to go back to the children of Israel right after they got delivered. I I refer to Exodus all the time because it's my absolute favorite book in the Old Testament. But this is right after the children of Israel got saved, right? We remember Moses was the great savior through all that. Saved from 430 years of Egyptian slavery and oppression, right? God does this big salvific moment that's beautiful when he parts the Red Sea in Exodus 14 and they walk on dry land through the Red Sea and then when the enemies are coming behind them to take them back, the Red Sea closes back up, kills all the Egyptian enemies and now Israel finds themselves for the first time in 400 years as sovereign nation, free people, nomads, in this newfound land that happened to be desert. Now, here's the interesting thing. They weren't wanting the desert after salvation because they had been given a promise of God. It was a literal, physical, geographical promise, this this area on earth called Canaan, where they had been told for hundreds of years, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. There is so much surplus there. There is so much resource there. There is so much for the taking there. So when they get saved and they cross that Red Sea and now they are a sovereign nation, all that's on their mind is the same thing that all on your mind, in my mind, the promises of God. And listen to me, that is a good thing. But what we now know in retrospect is there was a 40-year distance between the finish line and their anticipation. 40 years spent where? In this obscure desert wasteland, this middle ground. 
And it looks like this massive indictment on God, this desert time, 40 years. But God was doing some of his best crockpot work, preparing them to walk into the promises he had for them, Canaan, with integrity and with character. Because if they would have gone straight from Egyptian slavery and the mindset that they had gotten over 400 years right into the promises of God, you know what they would have done? They would have completely stewarded them to their peril. They would have completely misused them and would have been next to no better off than they were if they would have just stayed in Egypt. So God's got this ready for it, this waiting period. Now, it wasn't supposed to be 40 years if you read the story, but you know what got lost several times in the waiting was hope. And when hope got lost, guess what they did? They started trying to take the time frame into their own hands. They stopped trusting God. They started acting like Egyptians more than they were Israelites. And it didn't go good for them. So Exodus 13, 17, with that context, it says this. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not listen to this. God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country. And here it is, though it was what? Shorter. For God said, if they face war, Philistines, by the way, were like the Braveheart or 300 or gladiators of the day. There was no more skilled warriors on planet Earth than the Philistines. From birth, these guys were being trained to just do nothing but be warriors. They were the baddest dudes on planet Earth. So God's being kind here, taking them the long way. Do you hear me? They didn't have any way of knowing that, though. They didn't know about the Philistines. They didn't even know where the Philistines lived. They may have heard some folklore about them, but they didn't even know. They just want the fastest direction to the promised land. But God wouldn't take them that way, even though it was shorter. For God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. It goes on to say this. So God led them. Listen to this. This is God leading them. God led the people around the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. They were ready for battle. And God's like, yeah, no, you're not. You guys have heard it said before, right? The shortest distance between two points is what? A straight line. Go ahead and put this map of the desert where they spent 40 years right after salvation trying to find the promises of God. Now, if you look up top, it says the land of Goshen. Can you all see that? Land of Goshen, and then you see those little purple dots? Way over there, if you follow those purple dots, eventually at the end of those purple dots is Canaan. This place that represents the promises of God, this place that they were fixated on. It was the finish line for them. It was the fulfillment of God's goodness to them as a people. It was a fulfillment of God's promise. That right there is the fastest possible way they could have gone. But as we read in the scriptures earlier, they would have had to go through the most fiercest army on planet earth at the time. And God knew what they didn't know. They would have absolutely been destroyed and they would have never found the promises of God. Now you guys see that orange line of, of course, right? That's actually their 40 year journey right there. So, so look at their plan, the purple dots, how they would do it, how they would draw it up. Now look at God's plan. <laughs> God's timetable is not our timetable. God's ways are higher than our ways. Now, I understand them going south so that they could avoid the Philistines, but I don't understand them going that far south. Like, God, you got to, and then they go so far, at least clip the, at least clip the Red Sea right there. You got to go that far. Like, you're going to give them another water journey to go through, another big moment. Like, at least just clip through that. And then what, what in the world's going on up in the wilderness of Zen, right? 
And if I have time, I'll come back to that in a minute here. But that's, that's what God's doing. Like the wilderness of Zen, I'll just, I'll, just, I'll just cliff notes it for you. This is where they just lose all hope. They're over it. They're done. They're starting to distrust that God is good. They're starting to stop believing by hope and faith that God has a promised land for them. And so guess what they start doing? What we have to do when we lose hope. Just start doing a lot of work, but moving in circles, getting nowhere. Because that's what happens when we try to take our lives into our own control so that we can try and think that we're in charge of the timetable. They're doing, they're doing as much walking and as much wilderness stuff as they were before, except now they're just going in circles, getting nowhere. So the second thing I want us to understand, if you're going to learn the art of waiting well, first one was this, God's timetable is not our timetable. The second thing is this, this is so key. This revelation changed my life when it came to hope. It's this, if you're going to learn the art of waiting well, you have to make your peace with this fact. God cares more about who you're becoming than what you're doing. If God cared more about what we're doing than what we're becoming, he would have fast-tracked them straight to the promised land where the opportunities would be greater, the achievements would be bigger, the surplus would be uh, beyond anything they'd ever experienced before. If God cared more about what they were doing and accomplishing, he would have just put them right into Canaan, miraculously. But instead, it's 40 years what? Crock-potting them. Because we serve a, we serve a, a marinator, not a microwaver, right? So 40 years. He cares about who you're becoming. I think about King David. When he got anointed to be king, he was the second king ever of Israel. Just so you understand, this is a principle of God, right? He's one of the chief major five-star generals in the redemptive story. We preach on David all the time, right? He's such a fundamental part to the story. In fact, in the Gospels, Jesus refers to himself sometimes as the son of David. When he was anointed king by Samuel, he was about 15, 16 years old. Do you know when he would eventually become king? 22 years later. That almost seems like a cruel joke, does it not? You get the biggest moment anyone of Israel could have. The great prophet Samuel comes and anoints your head with oil and says, you are the future king after King Saul is dethroned. You're the next guy and you're God's guy. And I could imagine as a 16-year-old, but no 16-year-old needs to be on any kind of throne doing any kind of thing in charge, right? You still, your brain's still forming. 22 years working on the backside of a mountain with what? Sheep. And then you watch how he stewarded with such excellence and with such patient anticipation, with integrity. If you, if you read his bio and his story, with complete integrity, he walks through those 22 that had to be frustrating years when God speaks to you one of his promises and it's not two more decades till that promise is gonna come to fruition. But here's why. God cares more about what David would become than what David would do. And the same thing's true with you and I. Vice versa, the first king that David, he would take his, his throne eventually, the first king of Israel was a guy named King Saul. He was anointed king because the people demanded from God a king. God never wanted kings. That was never his idea. That was the world's way of doing things. Put some one man in power, one woman in power. That was the world's way of doing things and it wasn't working good. But Israel, like temptation we have, wanted to be like the rest of the world. So they were like, give us a king. We need a king. We're a nation now. Give us a king. And God's like, it's, it's not what I want. I just, I'm, a, I'm a God of prophets. I just want to give you, keep giving you prophets. They're like, we want a king. They give him King Saul. Do you know how long it took him to become king after he was anointed? 
seven days. You guys know how his throne ended up? Tragic. He, he gives us a master class in what narcissistic leadership looks like. If you ever want to know what narcissistic leadership looks like, go and read about the first king of Israel ever. Why? There was no marinating. There was no crock potting. God was going to, in his sovereign wisdom, give them what they wanted, even though it wasn't what they needed, so that they could learn a lesson about what's most important. So he gives them a king, and seven days after he gives them a king, he's anointed king, and it ends up bad because he went right into doing and spent no time becoming. And so the second time around, it's like, we're doing it different this time. 22 years. Greatest king of Israel of all time, without question, was King David. Why? God's a marinator, not a microwaver. I could go down the list of all the ways with all of the great men and women of God in the scriptures that God would, Paul, let me just, you right, he, he gets knocked off his horse. He goes blind for three days. He has this big salvation moment. He puts his faith and his trust in Jesus. He's saved. Then he gets word that he's gonna like change the nations. He's gonna be, he wouldn't have known it at the time, but we now know like the greatest missionary that this world has ever seen. Uh, apart from Jesus, the greatest theologian this world has ever seen is the apostle Paul. Do you know what? the book of Galatians says in chapter one, the first thing he did was he went to Arabia for three years. You ever look at Arabia on a map? There's, it's way cooler now. They got a lot of cool cities and there's a lot of technological development and a lot of, but back then he was just going the same place God sent Moses when he got called, same place God sent David, the same place God took the children of Israel. He went right to the desert. For three years, and we don't have a clue what was happening, but I promise you, I know what was happening. God was changing him because he cares way more about Paul, the person, the inside person, than he cares about what Paul would do. And Paul would do some amazing stuff, but Paul had all kinds of, uh, of mindsets that were broken and flawed. Paul was, prior to giving his life to Christ, trying to kill and murder Christians. That takes some time to get out of your system, out of your DNA. You guys know what I'm saying? That's why God needed 40 years with Israel to get the Egyptian mindset out of them so that they could actually steward the finish line with integrity and character. Guys, this is what hope is. Hope is learning to wait well. Now, my time is almost up, and so I'm going to do this. I'm not going to do point three. Aren't you proud of me? Normally, I would just do point three. I'm not going to do point three because eventually it's going to be a sermon in itself. I will tell you what the point is, but then I'll preach it sometime on its own because it's worth the time. It's, it's this. If you're going to be a person who, who hopes well, you're going to have to watch what you worship while you wait. Because what Israel ended up doing in the desert that cost them so much time from the promises of God coming to fruition was they ended up, because they were tired of waiting, they started building this golden calf. They sent Moses off to go on a mountain to do their bidding with Yahweh. And they said, hey, well, he's up there talking to that God. We're going to go tap back into some of those Egyptian gods we learned about the last 400 years. And they build this golden calf. And they start to, to, well, they're waiting on Moses to come down because he was up there for 40 days, right? Getting some really important downloads from God. And they're down here, they're down here practicing Egyptian worship again because it's kind of like, like a version for us of like, man, I'm going to go to church on Sunday and get like a charge. I'm going to go to church on Sunday and get like filled up. I'm going to get my little, my little dose of hope, my little shot of hope. 
But then about Thursday, if, the, if, if all the things I hoped and prayed for at church, when I left feeling so good and lighter, if those don't happen by Thursday, I'm gonna start going back to my other gods again. Yes, Lord. I, this is like the Oscars. I'm getting to wrap it up. Is this a new thing? It's come to that, guys. I just got played out. I will not stop. I'm receiving my reward right now. I'm just kidding. I just got Oscared. I'll never forget that. That was awesome. So you got to watch what you worship while you wait. Listen to me. If you can embrace this, I'm telling you, it will change your life because most of your life will be spent waiting. Most of your life will be spent in the waiting. This is why hope is fundamental. This is why hope anchors our soul. Because hope is precisely the person you choose to be while you're waiting. Listen to what Romans chapter 5 says. The Apostle Paul writes this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have what Trevor talked about last week. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom through whom we have also obtained access by faith into this grace. And then listen to this. Not only that, but we also rejoice, not in just the good news, we rejoice in our sufferings, or as King James puts it, long sufferings. In the King James version of the Bible, when we're reading about the fruits or the proof that the Spirit's living in us, one of them's patience, right? But you know what the original language is more like? Long suffering. Because we also rejoice in our sufferings, and for today, I'll say our long sufferings, our moments of waiting, we rejoice in those. This is what hope can actually cause. This is why I love this verse. Hope can actually give you the ability to maintain joy in really difficult seasons of waiting. You don't have to be a smaller version of who you were intended to be because God's promises haven't came to fruition yet. You just have to remind yourself there's some of the best flavors and nutrients in my soul and my spirit being cooked up and being brought out right now because I choose to wait with faith and I choose to wait with integrity and I choose to wait with trust and I choose even when God's time frame isn't matching my time frame, even when God's not doing things at the speed I wish he would do them, even when I'm tempted to think God has forgotten me, I will anchor my soul in hope. Even when I'm suffering, I'm still going to rejoice. And here's why. Suffering produces endurance, patience. What's patience produce? Character. What's the slow cook produce in our lives? Character. And then you ready for it? What's character give you? Hope. Hope isn't some pie-in-the-sky, Americanized, self-help ideal of just simple optimism. Just trying to talk yourself into good things happen. Just sitting there visualizing good things happening. That's not enough. It's good to sit there and, and think about good things. That's part of it. But that's not hope. Hope is, I don't like this time frame, God. God be like, I know. I feel you, son. I feel you, daughter. But I'm not in charge. And I believe you are faithful. And I believe, just like we saying, you are good. So hope transcends just mere self-helpy optimism. Hope is putting an anchor into your situation, putting an anchor into your season and saying, I will trust God in the waiting. I will not be obsessed with the timetable. I will be obsessed with my worship and my obedience to God and I will let the chips fall 
where they sovereignly fall because I have tasted and seen that God is good. And while I'm waiting, here's what's gonna fire me up and motivate me. While I'm waiting, I just gotta believe God's doing some of his finest and best work on me. So when that promise does come to fruition, I'm ready to steward it with such gratitude, such joy, to be so worship-filled and thankful to God and delicate towards this gift he's given me finally because I waited well. That's what hope is. It's how we wait. It says character produces hope. And then I love this. Hope doesn't put us to shame. My, my translation says, hope does not disappoint because God has poured out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. This thing of waiting will always feel like an indictment. If you can be strong enough in your faith to get past that, to get more mature than that, to understand that, no, 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 this waiting isn't an indictment from God on me. It's a gift from God preparing me for something greater because he cares more about who I'm becoming than what I'm doing. The prophet Isaiah would say it this way in Isaiah 40. We've all heard this verse. I'll end with this. How'd I do? Five minutes over. That's good for me. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Waiting's not passive in the kingdom of God. Isn't that good news? What you're waiting for right now is not passive. It's an aggressive gift from God. Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. When you wait well, this is the spoils, the long game. You shall run, get things done, cross some finish lines, but not be dead in the end. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not grow faint. See, God's playing the long game. I wrote in my notes and forgot to bring it up. We want God to play checkers with us. God plays chess, y'all. I want God to play checkers with me. Fun, quick game, do some jumps, take some kings and queens, get it over with fast, start again, right? God's not in a hurry, so he plays chess. It's methodical. It's thorough. It's intentional. It's thought through. God's up to a thousand sovereign things that you and I can't see when you're waiting. We read about one of them, right? To keep them from having to go to war with the Philistines, he took them the long way. Here's the problem. They had no clue that the short way would have killed them. You just got to trust God, and that's where hope comes in. That's where your hope's anchored, just going, I don't like this time frame. Some of you, you're in that spot right now, and I'm talking to you today. Some of you don't like the time frame, and it's starting to frustrate you with God. He is up to a thousand things that you cannot see or perceive that are for your good and for his glory. Can you trust that today? That's what I'm asking. Can you trust that today? Easier preached than lived because I'm in that boat. I tell you this every week. I just preach what I need to hear and trust you're like me. I need to hear this today. I've been praying some certain prayers for several years now. And some, sometimes it feels like I'm taking steps backwards, not forwards with these prayers. But I refuse 
I refuse to buy into the lie that God is not good, that God is not faithful, that God is not for me. He's been too faithful and too good and too for me too many times now. Uh, When I look back, when we do communion, when we remember the goodness of God, he's been too much of that for me to think he's done doing that now. And can I just plead with you, if you're in the boat like me and you're waiting on some key things and you're starting to get exhausted from the endurance and perseverance it takes, would you please hold on? Would you please not give up? Would you use today, this moment right now, to re-anchor your hope in the goodness of God? If you're in this room right now, let's, let's have church right now. Let's be a community of people. This is a safe place. So with every head open, every head, every head up and every eye open, let's have a moment of honesty. If you're in here and you're like me and you say, Chad, I'm in one of those seasons where I'm having to persevere through some stuff and I'm almost just tired of praying about it. I'm weary in trying to do the right thing. I'm starting to lose some hope and I don't want to be a person who loses my anchor. So would you pray for me? Can we pray together? If that's you, would you just put your hand up? Come on, this is, this is something we're all going to go through at different times. Look at all the hands that are up right now. Look at all the hands that are up right now. Thank you for your honesty. Thank you for your vulnerability. I'm going to say this every time to those of you who didn't your hand, have your hands up right now. We celebrate the season you're in. Praise God. Enjoy it. But keep these notes in your back pocket. Because this is cyclical stuff, right? Most of your life will be spent waiting. And the gift God gives us is hope. It's hope. The art of waiting well. So Jesus, right now, I pray for every single person. A, in this room, but B, specifically for the people who had their hands up. God, I pray uh, right now there would be uh, an infusion of faith put on the inside of them. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray right now that there would be just this, this reordering of their mindsets and of their hearts, that they would walk out of these doors with a newfound trust and, and, and hope and patience that you are for them. And even if it's not happening in the time frame they'd like, that you are working a thousand things below the surface on their behalf for their good and for your glory. God, help us to not just hear this intellectually. God, please let this go to our hearts. Please let this get past our heads and straight down to our hearts, Lord, so that we can walk out of these doors with more peace and more shalom than we walked in. May we, God, by your grace, witness to the world, if for nothing else, because we are people of hope. I pray for this and I believe for this in the name of Jesus and all my church family and friends said, amen. Amen. I love you guys so much. Hey, on your way out, We can clap for Jesus. Don't clap for me. Clap for Jesus. Love and appreciate you all. Please hold on. If you need any prayer, please do not be bashful. We're going to have people that are going to stick around after service. They always come down to the front and they're just here because they want to pray for you. The Bible says when we start praying together, two or three powerful things start happening. Don't forget also concerning prayer. There's prayer cards at both corners of the building on your way out. We want to pray for you this whole month. So write those prayers down and know that we are in your corner. You are loved, grace, and peace.